Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Pearls. This is our third of our four-part series on leaving a legacy that lasts. Tonight, we're going to look at some of those questions that you may have, and so you'll be able to fill those out on your 3x5 card and eventually get those to me. And uh, we'll also uh, take some time to go through some specific issues related to kids who don't talk, why kids walk away from the church, and all of that. But uh, I was just thinking today, how many of you are tired? Anybody tired tonight? I just drove, golly, you guys are just, thank you for having empathy with me. One of us. I just drove three hours from Oceanside, California. And do you know there's no good way to get here from <laughs> when you leave at three o'clock? You know, so thank you for being here. But I'm going to answer for the two of us why one of us is tired. It goes like this. There are 200 million Americans. 85 million are over 65, and 76 million are under 21. That leaves only 38 million to do the work. But 5 million are in the armed forces. That leaves 32 million to do the work. But 15 million work for the government. That leaves 11 million to do the work. 10 million are in school. That leaves only 1 million to do the work. Last week... There were 750,000 people who were either sick or disabled. That leaves only 250,000 people to do the work. Also, there were 249,998 people in jail. That only leaves two people to do the work. And since you don't do much, no wonder I'm tired. So that answers our questions why we're tired. Um, We're going to have a little fun tonight. Do you believe that the joy of the Lord is our strength? Good. So look at one another and enjoy your company. Uh, we, if you can't see me and it would be easier to sit at one of these tables, feel free to move so you're not always have to turn around because there's a wonderful table there. But if you'd like to sit right there and look this way, you're fine. Okay. So um, any of you school teachers? Anybody school teachers? So um, The teacher said to the student, an abstract noun is something you can think of, but you can't touch it. Can you give me an example of one? Sure, the teenage girl replied, my father's new car. An abstract noun. All right, well, with that, I'm going to quit while I'm behind. We're going to look at some parenting pearls tonight. So, take your notes. And we'll look at some specific issues tonight. Let's look at, um, but what about, all right? But what about? Let's first of all look at allowances, all right? How many of you do allowance? You, they get some allowance for some kind of something. How many do allowances? All right, we're going to find out what, no, wow, one person, two, thankfully. All right, how old's the kid and how much is the allowance? It's sporadic allowance, but when it's sporadic, then it's called a bribe, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so four years old, and how much? About a dollar. Nice. What do you do for the tooth fairy? Is there a tooth fairy? Haven't, Haven't lost a tooth yet. We'll come back to that. How old and how much? Um, 15, 11, and 10. 15, 11, and 10. He doles it out. He puts it in a bank. Oh, in their bank account. 
And they just get a debit card and, and take it out. They have cash, but they have a debit card. That is awesome. Do you want a fourth child? Because I'd like to be yours. All right, so nobody else does allowances. Yes, okay, now the truth comes out. How old? Six. Six, sporadic, and how much? So, sort of getting a dollar, but then he earns money. He earns extra money for things that he wants. All right. So, let me just give you some background on allowances. All right. Number one, it usually begins with a child's five or six, and I'll give you, I'm going to give you four rules here in just a moment. All right. Um, But the reason you give an allowance to kids is you, the idea is you want to teach money management. This is a good thing. So allowance is a tool to teach them financial management. For some of you, you're going, maybe I need to have an allowance. I remember when we were first married, uh, I'm pretty good at managing money. My wife's pretty good at managing money. But remember I told you a couple weeks ago, our paycheck was $500 a month and rent was $260. And so we had to budget very carefully. And so I remember we were told, you know, don't do the credit card thing, do the envelope thing. So the envelope thing was, you, you know, this is much for gas, this much for groceries. When you do that and you actually put the money in there, there's virtually nothing left. And I remember that I got a whopping $5 a month. That was my allowance. Spend it anywhere you want. And uh, it was quite an opportunity uh, in humility. And I, back in the day, that's when I started doing weddings. I'm praying that I could do a wedding for someone because maybe they'd you know, throw me a $50 bill if I did their wedding. Uh, so from early days on, I was a mercenary when it came, to, no I wasn't, to do weddings, but we had to manage our money. So it's a money management tool, and I wanna suggest these four rules, all right? Number one, and it'll be on the screen, children do not earn their allowances, all right? They don't earn their allowances. The bottom line is you're gonna give it, that's fine, because you don't, you, what you wanna teach them is household chores are really just a part of life. So some people are saying, no, you do this, I'll pay you this. Now, there are certain times I think I will pay my child for something, right? It's the most disgusting task that I don't want to do. Now, I've already identified, for me, the most disgusting task that I don't want to do is pulling weeds. I will pay for that, that or I will punish for that. That's either one. It works either. I pay or punish. It works for me. Um, but they don't earn their allowance. And so for some of you, what you want to do is that allowance is teaching them about, you know, how you manage that money. Now, secondly, provide the allowance at the same time every week, all right? Second principle is provide at the same time every week. So if Fridays after school, that's fine. Now, you can lose allowance. Um, you can lose allowance for poor behavior, uh, but you got to be careful about that because that then gets into a real battle like we've talked about before. Rule number three. Now you're going to say, seriously? Yeah. Rule number three, never insist that children save the allowance. And you say, why? Wouldn't that be? Now, I would suggest to my kids that allowance will teach you some responsibility. And we said this. We suggest that 10% of your allowance goes to the Lord. So our kids took their little 10%, which for us ranged from 3 to $5, depending on the age of their kid, uh, our kids. We actually didn't, be honest with you, we didn't actually do allowances for an awfully long time. 
uh, when they were young. We just, we said be responsible and we will provide. So we didn't really do this, but if you're gonna do this, this is what I would suggest. What we did do with allowances when they got into junior high and high school, we gave them a budget to work with and that's what their clothes had to be paid for out of their uh, lunch money so they could save money if they'd wanna make their lunch. Two kids again, just suggesting, can you guess which one actually made their lunch and which one spent the money on lunch? Of course, Katie made her little lunch. It was cute and she had little smiley faces and you know, it was awesome. Little carrot sticks. John Daniel's like, take the money and run. I'm going, you know, buying the school cafeteria. Uh, and then number four, allow kids to spend the 70% however they want, all right? Rule number four, or three, did I get to, I skipped that. Number three, follow the t- 10, 20, 70 plan. So I was in the middle of that. The 10 is give, uh, save 10%, and in their case, um, we said, how about 10% going to the Lord? 20% was for savings. And then that gets you to the 70%. They can do the 70% however they want. And that was rule number four. They can spend that 70% however they want. Now, in real life, for most of you, unfortunately, 10% goes to savings, 20% goes to debt reduction or paying off credit cards, and 70% you try to live on. And what I say is before we pay Caesar, we pay Jesus. And so my, people ask me, and this is not a, a talk on tithing, but I tithe on my gross income. Before Uncle Sam, anybody gets, I get, I tithe on that money first. And we, we've not found that a problem to outgive the Lord. And then we save at least 10% of our money. And for us, uh, uh, the good news is the only debt that we have in our life is our houses. We pay cash for our cars, and we pay our credit cards off every month, and we've been married 34 years, and so we're not consumed by this crushing debt that so many people are under. And we've modeled that for our kids. Both of our kids graduated from college without any college debt. We paid as we went. Now, to do that, for some of you, that means um, that I take this off my ear and put it back on. Uh, For some of you, that means when your kids get older, the savings plan for college was um, my wife went back to work. She was a stay-at-home mom for 17 years, and Katie's senior of high school, she went, and we kind of joked, said, Katie, loving the fact that you're going to college, but you know that your mom's 100% of her income goes like this. First 15% goes to the Lord, and the rest of it goes to Biola University. We didn't realize one single dime of her income for four years. And that wasn't to make our kids feel guilty because our daughter had to earn one-third of her college education. So through scholarships and herself working and her mom working, that was our college savings plan. Um, Some of you make enough money that you can put away for college. We weren't that disciplined. We just tried to stay out of debt. Now, I say all that because when we're talking about allowances, your philosophy of money is gonna come out as you teach your kids how to manage their money. So the, the bottom line is if you don't manage your money very well, then maybe that's gonna be a tougher lesson on how you teach them to manage their money, all right? So uh, the other thing is uh, rule number five, when it's gone, 
It's gone. And, you know, no cash advances. Although I did teach my son the principle of interest, compounding interest, and usury, which are all, usury is a biblical term, and I, he didn't like the fact that I charged him 12% interest on money for one week. That was called being a loan shark. He did that once, he didn't like that. So when it's gone, it's gone. A lot of parents do. We didn't use allowance at all until they got into, actually to high school. But it wasn't really allowance, it was, we're giving you money and now you're gonna, we're gonna help you budget your money for how you deal with paying for school, clothes, gifts, uh, et cetera. The only thing we didn't put a part of that was um, church events because we really felt like I want them at that and I don't want that to be the first thing that goes out of the, oh, I don't have money. I had money for prom. I didn't have money for winter camp, you know. So, you know, for our kids, when they were younger, and maybe it was a simpler day and an easier place to live. We lived in Minnesota. We said, you know what? We want you to be responsible. That was one of our big deals. Just be responsible, and I don't want you to worry about money. And so many kids, especially when I was a high school pastor, as they got older, as you got high school kids, they lived to get that car, and then they became completely enslaved to a car payment. So we didn't, you know, this is the other thing that we, for our kids and money, um, I taught a sophomore Bible study at your Belinda Friends Church when my kid, my son was a sophomore. They had, so we had about 500 high school kids in the high school group, and so we were divided all over your Belinda, you know, in small groups. So I had only the sophomores from one high school, Esperanza High School, about 40 kids in our living room every Wednesday night. And it was remarkable every single week from about October, because what happens, what age do you turn when you're a sophomore in high school? 16. Every single week from about early October all the way through the school year, this was the little routine that happened. And kid walk in and he'd do this kind of strutting around like a peacock. And Pastor John, come and check it out. You know how depressing it is when every single kid at Esperanza High School who turns 16 drives a nicer car than you do? I mean, there is something fundamentally wrong when the cars in the student parking lot are nicer than the cars in the faculty parking lot. So my son's birthday wasn't until February. So he's seen several weeks of this. So he's going, so dad, what am I getting? I said, you get the privilege of using the car. Are you serious, Dad? Yeah, I am serious. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm not. I've got to drive that 1993 Pontiac Le Mans? Yes, you get to, if you want to drive. I mean, that's up to you. You're going to have to fight your sister for it. i got to share a car, Dad? Well, that's the best way to use it because right now she's driving it. Oh my goodness. So you thought that he had been raised by the wolves in some backward town in Alaska because that was such a, a horrible thing to have to endure. So uh, if allowance doesn't, you don't have to worry, you know, worry about that. Now, I do believe there are tasks and chores that you can say you compensate kids for. But what I didn't want to get into is Oh, I gotta get paid to empty my trash. I gotta get paid to make my bed. No, you get to make your bed and you get to eat. It's a, it's a fair trade. You get to empty your trash and you get to 
have a bed. You know, so um, it really never came to that for us, but I think sometimes we, we start paying kids off way, 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 way too soon. All right? Uh, angry outbursts. Let's go to that next. Angry outbursts. Um, how many of you have ever had a kid that erupted at you at whatever age, okay? So they, 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 you know, some would say that eruption began when they were 18 months old. Um, I don't know exactly when they know what they're doing, but I know it's somewhere along the line when they realize that if they do this, they get a response from you. And you, that'll be different for every kid. Whether they know if they make noise in church that you will stuff candy down their little mouth, then I know that they know that you know that they know that they won, right? Something like that. So um, in terms of anger, um, we have a real simple phrase. Would you rephrase that, please? Would you rephrase that, please? Now, I think I illustrated this for you before, right? My wife was so good at that. She'd just get down at eye level and say, John Daniel, would you rephrase that for me? And she'd do it in such a sweet and nice way. Now, she did it the right way. Here's how I did it. You want to be my victim? I mean, my volunteer? John Daniel, would you like to say that a little differently? Now, that wasn't nearly as effective as my wife. I inflamed the situation. I didn't quite strangle him. I was thinking that a taser would have been a much better tool as he was growing up, but it, it didn't work. And so the bottom line is oftentimes your kids are mirroring your own stress level. So if you have kids that are uptight and angry and frustrated, before you just lay it all on their shoulders, ask yourselves, what kind of climate am I creating in our home, right? What kind of climate do I have? Are you all uptight? You come home, and you're just like, and you're like, just, because I think our kids know they can sense our moods from a very young age. Now, I've told you about my personality type. I'm a lion otter. I'm a high D, a high I. I'm the Myers-Briggs. I'm an E-N. TJ or ENFJ, and that schizophrenia of the think and feel, the lion, the otter, the high D, high I, you can imagine what it was like growing up in my home with me as a father. Now, you're just smiling like, I'm so much more together than you, Pastor John. I would never overreact like that. Seriously? Okay, well, live with that myth. Anyway, the bottom line is, my kids on Sunday, Saturday morning, the big joke was, would the lion wake up or the otter. Now the lion is the guy who does what? All right, kids, today we're going to clean the house. I have a task list here. Katie, report to duty. You get to do the garage. John Daniel, oh, you're hopeless. Uh, no. Uh, you get to work with your mother today, John Daniel. Uh, you, get to, you get to work on the living room. Dad, what are you doing? I am delegating and managing. Dad doesn't play so well. Or they would hope that on Saturday morning that the otter woke up. Because the otter was like, hey, we're staying in our jammies all day. We got donuts from Krispy Kreme. We're going to just watch TV. Your mom's going to win on Super Mario Brothers and get like the spaceship at the highest level. And then maybe we're going to order pizza. And maybe we won't cook all day, and your mom can just do whatever she wants, and we're just going to play. Now, 
they would hope that the otter woke up every Saturday morning. So my kids would mirror my behavior. And so if I was uptight and frustrated, they were uptight and frustrated. So as we talk about anger, first of all, we need to understand that in your notes there that anger is a secondary emotion. And I want to just remind you again that, that, that it's a secondary emotion. What's causing that anger, all right? What's causing that anger? Let me suggest there are four things. First of all, anger is caused by fear, fear. Every mother has experienced anger with a child that's related to fear. When is it, ladies? When do you exhibit anger as it relates to fear? I'll give you a scenario. Your toddler is about to walk into the, you know, maybe, maybe toddler's too young. Four-year-old's about to step off the curb into oncoming traffic. What do you do? Do you calmly say, I'm sorry, my son, but you have about four nanoseconds before your life will end. If you do not step back very quickly, you will be dead. Do you do it that way? Of course not. You go, watch out! You grab them, and you, you, and you save their life, and you go, what are you thinking? He's thinking nothing. He's thinking I was going to go for a little stroll. And so we get angry. How about dads? Have you ever been late and did not call your lovely bride that you were going to be late? And you don't call, and it's an hour, and it's two hours, and you stroll home. You're waiting for that big hug and kiss. Does she hug and kiss you? No. She goes, what are you? I thought you were dead. I was ready to call the hospital. You were probably in a ditch. I was worried sick about you. I love you too, honey, right? And we have a funny way of showing our emotions when we're actually very relieved. Third one, you're driving. It's the five to the 134, to the 101, getting off at Cheeseboro or Canaan. But somewhere along there, some hot rod wants to cut you off. Do you say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for a wonderful opportunity to praise you today for patience because right now, I want to tell you, right? Do we do that? That's called road rage. Do you see, anger is a part of, you're saying, wow, John, you really were on the freeway for three hours. <laughs> see, all of us experience anger in a different way. Some of you are very expressive. There are two Greek words for anger. One is thumos, where we get like a volcano. The other is orge, where we get this simmering kind of anger. You know those of you who are in that camp? This is your little phrase. I don't get mad. I just get even, right? It's like, ah, a little revenge, right? And so we have fear as the first secondary cause or of, that, of anger. Second is deep hurt. The second is deep hurt. Some of you have experienced that, where you've been deeply wounded by a and I'll say this just bluntly, it's on the tape. You've been hurt by a jacked up family. I mean, you, some of your stories would curdle our ears if we had to hear what you put up with growing up. My wife grew up in that kind of situation. We talk about it publicly now, but it's, it was a very, very messed up family. Dad left her mom when she was three years old. That relationship has forever caused her 
a whole bunch of issues. I can't get into some of the more personal ones, but it continues to this day. And the relationship is always tenuous for us with him. Deep hurt. Thirdly, you're angry because of frustration. Oh, by the way, just a little sidebar in counseling here, because I do a ton of marriage counseling. If you stuff that deep hurt down inside of you, acting like it'll just go away, and I should be a better person, and, and I, I don't have a right to be angry, and, and all the baloney that some people tell you, that isn't gonna work. You do ultimately have to forgive, but stuffing your deep hurt because you don't wanna come across angry, it will come out sideways. You ever heard the word passive aggressive? Check that one out. It's like taking the dead parakeet, putting it under the rug and going, yeah, I don't see that anymore. And every time you step on the dead parakeet, ooh, what is that? And then it starts stinking. And then you know you got a problem. That's what happens when you stuff deep hurt and never really deal what's going on inside. Uh, frustration is the third one. Unmet expectations, third cause of anger or third root cause is frustration, these unmet expectations. And um, you have that all the time. You, you mask it, but you have to deal with low-level frustration all the time. Uh, anytime you're caught in traffic, every time you pick the wrong line at the grocery store, that always goes faster on that line. Uh, every time you stand in the express line where it's only supposed to be 15 items, and that guy always has 16 or 17. What, you think uh, that you can get, you're above the law and you wanna say something that, and there's all kinds of frustrations. How about the frustrations that your kids feel? You know, sometimes they're angry because they're just frustrated. They study and study and study and they still only get a C on the test. Or maybe this happens, they study, study, and study, they get a B on the test, but these kids get A's because they're cheating but they don't want to narc them out and so they sit there in frustration and these kids are cheating to get A's and they're studying, they're getting B's. How's that right? And that kind of leads to the fourth one, that's called injustice. Sometimes you're angry because it's just not right. It's just not right. Now of the four causes of anger, fear, deep hurt, and frustration, those are things that we see but don't generally have a godly connection there's one of those four, the last one, injustice, that if you're, if you're angry because of injustice, you got a little bit of a biblical foot to stand on. Jesus was angry, right? Who, he was angry a, a bunch of different times, but the ones that we remember the most were what? Two times in particular. Who did he get angry at? Do you remember? They were selling stuff in the temple. They were taking advantage of people, the money changers in the temple, right? And it, it was an injustice because they were, they, were, they were not being honest, Right, And he also got frustrated and angry with a certain group of people besides the money changers. Remember who he got angry with? The Pharisees, the religious people who walked around going, you gotta do this, you gotta do that, you gotta do this, you gotta add to this, and it just made this long list, and before you were done, it was just like you were burdened, and, you, and, and he called them white-washed tombs or sepulchers. That's pretty strong language. And so there are times where you have legitimate anger. And there are people who started whole ministries because they're legitimately upset about stuff. Like sex trafficking, that's something to be angry about. Abortion, that's probably something to be angry about. The problem is in the church, 
We may be upset about some things, but sometimes our cure is worse than the problem. We're upset about abortion, but then we reject the unwed mother. And that doesn't seem to make sense. And so we're very strong about pontificating about what we're against, but are we as much about what we're for? I've just gone from teaching a seminar to meddling. That's for Sundays. Let's get back to the text here. All right, so uh, anger. Uh, there are four causes. And I, I guess the, the bottom line is for, for you, you both, you and your kids, you've got to cool off and walk away. Bottom line is you've got to cool off and walk away. Because at some point, you're going to say something you regret, and I know they won't learn how to deal with that if they don't watch you learn how to manage your own emotions. You say, man, I'm just a hothead. Are there any hope for my kids? Yeah. That's something I had to work on as a kid growing up because my mom, dad, very calm. And I had a ton of conflict with my mom growing up. And I probably have said this, but if I haven't, I'll remind you again. It's very interesting any time in our early marriage when my wife acted like my mom, how much I had that same clash with her. It took us a few years to figure that out. And it was great because one day Cheryl finally said, and we had so much stress in our first three years of marriage. It was unbelievable. And she finally said to me one day, she said, you know, honey, I'm not your mom. I know that then why do you react to the most innocent things I say as if I am your mom? I go, what do you mean? Anytime I make a suggestion, you think that I'm being controlling. As if this was back when you were nine and your mom was making you, you know, eat your vegetables. We had a good laugh about that because I realized she's absolutely right. And so sometimes, parents... You don't realize it, but the issues you had growing up, it all comes out again as you're parenting, and you have different parenting styles. And if you didn't deal with it back then, it's amazing how it resurfaces in parenting your own kids. You say, Pastor John, you're one messed up dude, aren't you? Wow, should you even be a pastor? Hey, what better job to have to tell people I was lost, now I'm found. That there's grace, that you don't have to be perfect. I think for some of you in this room and many, many groups I speak to, you're so hard on yourselves. We'll talk about that in a moment, but I'm pretty sure that when your kids are doing well, you take way too much credit. And when they're doing poorly, you take way too much blame. Just think about that for a second. All right. Let's go from uh, allowances to anger to bedtime. Woo, bedtime. Let's talk, how many of you have any bedtime problems? Any bedtime problems? All right, let's find out what they are and let's see if if we can address them. What's one of the bedtime problems you have? Uh, They want more time, more time. They're working you, working you, working you. Working the angles, the system. How old? Eight and 11, oh, that is the perfect age to work you, all right? Is dad easier or harder than you are on that deal? I am harder. You're harder. So dad, come on, dad. I want to watch TV. You got three kids, huh? Yeah, one, two, and three. Yeah, I got it, okay. Anybody else have bedtime issues? 
Those of you who don't, why don't you have bedtime issues? What have you done? How did you solve it? Yeah. A schedule, all right? A routine. It's on the refrigerator. They just know it intuitively. The lights all go out in the house. Uh, they just know. The lights go dark. I better be in bed, all right? Anybody else? How did you solve bedtime problems? Why is it not a problem? This is awesome. We can just skip this one. No. All right. So here's what I do. Number one, this is amazing. You cannot make a kid go to sleep. What? Yeah, you can't make them go to sleep. You can say you can lay in bed. You can stare at that ceiling all night long. But you can't make them go to sleep. Now, you can make it so that they will fall asleep. You know, that little cup of warm milk at night. You know, I'm always, I'm, I was big on the snack thing. It's not healthy, but it works, you know? It's a, it's a form of drug on the kid. No, I didn't do that. But, you know, <laughs> it's so funny. There's a group over there going, Pastor Jen, I just cannot believe you said that. You drug your kids, yeah, with milk and cookies. Um, so the bottom line is uh, kids will find all kinds of reasons for not going to bed. I haven't brushed my teeth yet. Dad, you told me I have to floss. Oh, I didn't take my bath yet. I have a hard time believing that that didn't happen. But generally, we smell them, they go to the bath. You know, they're going to do that. Um, the other thing is realize different kids require different amounts of sleep. Now, it's amazing. Every kid seems to be sleeping at the time that the alarm, if you do that, goes off. All of a sudden, I am the most tired kid in the world. Well, surprise, surprise. Now, I am not an early morning person. Who are the early morning people? I hate you. I hate you. Look at all you early morning people. You just wake up with a little smile. You're so happy. Where are the late night people? Yeah, those are my people right there. Late night people. Now, there are one third category. How many of you only have a couple of good hours in the middle of the day? Yeah, there we go. There's a, that, that's me too. All right. So different kids require different amounts of sleep. So sometimes you got to realize in their ages, they need more sleep. When they go through their growth spurt, they got to sleep a lot. I couldn't believe how much milk my son could drink in those teenage years. And he had a crazy schedule, but he needed sleep. Now the problem is your kids, when they're young, don't know they're tired, and they will work themselves up in this frothing frenzy and, and you just, you gotta put them down. And that's, we especially see that with the little ones, under three, right? As they're old, old enough, I know one of the high benchmarks of my kid's life was when there was no more mandatory nap time. I'm pretty sure from the time my son was four, he thought nap time was the lamest thing on the face of the planet. My daughter saw nap time, and we did the same thing, you just gotta lay down, we can't make you go to sleep, my daughter worked the angle by the time she was four or five. She was already reading, by the way. She wanted to know if I could, could I read myself to sleep during my nap? Well, she wouldn't, because she'd just keep reading. She's the kid who would like have the flashlight underneath the pillow, and I mean, she would try to read, read, read. John Daniel, that just never worked. And so, I think for some of you, you just gotta help them understand that sometimes they need a nap even they don't say they need a nap, and actually, if the truth be known for most moms, you need the nap more than they need the nap, and so we do it together, all right? Um, the sad thing for many parents is they put their children to bed so they will get them out of their hair in the evening, and I think that's kind of sad. You know, I, I think you've got to maximize that time. Now, I realize that everybody has different bedtime, so let's find out kind of what everybody's doing these days, all right? So, uh, five-year-old, right? What's the bedtime? 
11 p.m. or a.m.? P.m. Wow, I wish I could grow up in your house because I'm pretty sure five-year-olds don't stay up that late at your house, right? Seven o'clock. What do you have? Five. So I got 7.30, 7, 7, 7, 7.38, 11, all right? How old are your kids? Six. Six, how old, what time? 7.45, that's, they're on the schedule. 7.48, all right? How about over here, as they got older, yes? 10 and 11 go to bed at 8. All right, so send all three of your kids to their house because they get to stay up till 11. Yeah, so everybody has a little, little different deal. How about you? 8 o'clock. 8.30. And how old? Okay. So you're all in that range, and so the bottom line is you can see it's very, oh, I didn't ask you, how old, how, how, what time? You, you start working towards it? We start moving towards the bedroom at 8.30. That's right. It's a process. Okay, I like that attitude. Um, here's why my kids wanted to go to bed. Now you're going to say this. You're serious? I'm telling you. Remember, I have that firstborn who looks at her watch. She goes, Dad, isn't it time for me to go to bed? She's, you know, six years old. It's 8 o'clock. It's time for me to go to bed. And I, I still, to this day, think she was sick and twisted as a child. I just can't fathom that she would say she needs to go to bed. That's just weird, right? You must take after somebody other than my gene pool, you know? Um, my son, of course, wasn't that way, and we've talked about that. But here's what they did look forward to. They looked forward to dad time. Because dad time, after all the playing was all said and done, I would spend time with each kid, all right? Now, the problem was Katie would fall asleep sooner than John, even though she was older. So I always had to start with my oldest, and I would tuck her in, and we'd lay in bed, and we'd talk, and we'd do whatever. But she, she was all business. It's like, Dad, shouldn't you be getting to John Daniel now? It's like, get out of here. I want to go to bed. And I'm going, rejection. What's up with that, my daughter? Um, and she's just always been by the book, you know? So by the time I get to John Daniel, he's, he's ready to go. He could play with his G.I. Joes till I came to, to bed. And with him... I started a thing called Action Story of the Week. Action Story of the Week was a story that I would start telling him and I would just make it up. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty on, impromptu and I would just make up some big long chronicles of Narnia meets The Hobbit meets The Lone Ranger meets whatever. And I just make up these unbelievable stories. And I had the ability to just talk and make a story and then leave them hanging on a cliffhanger. And I'd leave him, and tomorrow night, we'll find out what happens. And he'd go, no, Dad, I can't sleep. And I realized I can't make it too big of a cliffhanger because then he's thinking, how would he solve that problem, right? The worst problem is I wouldn't remember what I had told the night before. And he could then recite the entire story. Remember, and he did this, that, and the horse went here. Yes, John, that's exactly what happened. And now, so if you're going to do that, you better make a few notes like where did you leave off and what's the point of the story. And no, most of our stories were like three-part uh, three series. I could never really string it out over a whole week. I could get through like Monday through Wednesday night, and then by Thursday I'd be bored with the story, and I'd have to come with a, up with a new one. When they got older, it wasn't so much about the stories. It was about praying. So they prayed it a little, 
And then we, pray, we did stories in the middle, and then we came, and then we always had this prayer time that was always, you know, but it was more profound as they got older. And again, depending on your kids, the Bible is a great thing to read them as the last thing they hear before they go to bed. Did I tell you that my wife played that on me the other night? That I, that I can't remember who I've told this to. I said this in a sermon, like, let the Bible be the last thing you read uh, before you go to bed. So this was maybe, what, two weeks ago? My wife and I, we were watching TV. She clicks the TV off. She looks at me, she goes, I'm going to apply what the pastor said. I'm going to read the Bible before I go to bed. How about you? And I went, oh, kiss up to the pastor there. Oh, that's dirty pool. I said, I really said that? She says, yes, you did. I said, I know. I just seen if you were listening. All right. So let's get uh, from bed. Any other questions about bedtime? Um, so at the bottom line is, hopefully bedtime isn't about just needing your space. All right. Let's get to chores. How about chores? How many people do chores? Now, we've talked about allowances. So let's talk about appropriate chores and at what age kids can do stuff. All right. Uh, let's talk to the veteran parents over here. So when your kids were little, like all these over here, they have little ones, what are kind of chores you had them do? Dishes. dishes. They could load the dishwasher, unload the dishwasher, actually wash dishes. Okay. What? Make your, bed. Make your bed. It's always a good one. All right. When they start making their bed? What age? Five and a half. Yeah, five and a half. Yeah, I think by the time they're going to school, they should be able to make a bed. Now, it may not be to your marine standards, you not be able to flip a dime off of it, but you know they should be able to make the bed. You know, any other chores, bed, dishes? Yeah, feed the dog. Excellent. We know how that works out from last week. Feeding the dog, sneaking out of houses. Yes. All right. Feeding the dog. What else? Set the table. All right. Chop vegetables. Clear the table. How many of you have used? Uh, you're, you're teaching your kids how to cook. All right. So a lot of you have done that. That's good. Um, unfortunately, I didn't do a very good job of that. My wife's a very good cook. I'm, I'm pretty much the dish guy. I can do the best dishes. I like to do that. Um, by the way, when your boys are young, make them do the dishes. Don't let them do the dishwasher because it gets the dirt out of, underneath their fingernails. It's a very good thing, all right? Actually, it will then sterilize their hands because you don't know where those fingers have been all day long, me and their nose, etc. cetera. Um, so chores, that's, that's an important thing. Um, one thing you might find out is that kids, number principle number one on chores, is they like to do it together, all right? Kids like to do chores together. Now, not so much with each other, but with you. And so that's something we learned. Our kids always loved working. Now, my son worked it a little bit, and so we have to be careful that they're not showing you what you're gonna be doing and as they direct you. But they love doing it together. Um, and I realized growing up, that was the worst form of punishment for me was when I had to do that kind of work by myself. And so maybe putting them in, in teams. Now, if you have a big family, that works great. You know, you can pair up a younger one with an older one, um, et cetera, make a little competition out of it. Um, the other thing is that kids naturally wanna copy us. And so they see you working, that sets the role model for them. So bad news, dad, if you're kinda like directing traffic and you don't ever do anything, all right, it's always mom doing all the work and dad's like, got control of the remote. Um, and even if you're not very handy, one of the things that my, kid, my kids have a deficit is I'm not very mechanical. 
Uh, I didn't learn how to you know, change oil in the car from my dad. I didn't learn some of those basic skills. I know how to change a tire and some of that, but uh, they really were at a deficit. And um, so uh, the good news is they had a mother who grew up in a single parent home, and she is unbelievably handy. So the joke at our, our home is, Dad, could you get Mom on the phone? <laughs> what? Mom knows. You know, the TV show was Father Knows Best. No, Mom does best. And um, it's amazing. She can change out electrical outlets. She's a great wallpaper. She's a much better painter. I get into paint fights. She actually gets the wall done. Um, so we agreed that, that my primary job in serving her as we're doing a project is I wipe the sweat from her brow, bring her the lemonade, cheer her on, and get out of her way. Um, now, when it comes to brute strength, I'm really good at like digging holes, moving rocks, you know, cutting up tree branches, snow blowing, that was my deal. I'm blowing the snow. When you lived in Minnesota, oh, that was just a wonderful experience. Um, as I, yeah, can you tell? You know, it's cold out there for you. You guys are all bundled up. But remember, I was in Minnesota. It turns 40, we start wearing shorts again. I'm, I'm in my element. All right, so uh, chores. Uh, kindergarten to first grade. Uh, oh, by the way, secondly, another thing, kids, must, it's got to be fun. Chores have got to be fun. And then you do have to give them a time schedule. You can't just do it when they want to do it. So you just give them a deadline. And so for a lot of kids, as they get older, the catch with chores is, yeah, you get to go out, but this has got to get done. So for us, it was all this long work on Saturday, but once you get into sports and there's all these soccer games, then you have a real problem. How are you going to get the lawn mode and play three soccer games and go to the team party, all right? So here's some rules of thumb, and, and it's not going to be on the screen. Um, number one, um, kindergarten to first grade, uh, they can clean up messes they make. They can clean their rooms. They can make their beds. Uh, they can do dishes. They can um, do all the things you've talked about. By the time they're in third through sixth grade, what should they be doing? Uh, they should be clearly being able to vacuum, uh, sweep out the garage, take out the trash, wipe out the refrigerator, clean dirty windows, help keep the car clean inside and out, okay? Um, when they're in high school, uh, good luck creating any time in their life because it's not about like, your time, it's like, oh yeah, I can squeeze you in, Dad. I got appointment time available next week. Would you like time with me from 4 to 4.15? And so we found with our kids, uh, when they got into high school, their number one job was to be an excellent student. Their number two job was for playing sports, was to play sports and to honor the Lord through the playing of that sport. Number three, we didn't let them work outside the home while they were in high school during the school year. They could have summer jobs, but not during the school year. And so, ironically, the chore thing for our family was lessened once they got into high school because we felt like, you know what, you're going to school, you gotta study, you gotta do homework. Now, they could work that, and, and we didn't have what you have, all this Facebook stuff and on the computer and messing around. They were studying, and there was no phone time, and there was no cell phone, so we knew they were studying or, you know, they would pay that consequence, all right? So you gotta work out the chore problem. Any questions about chores, okay? How about uh, clutter and clean rooms? How many is that an issue, clutter or clean rooms? All right, we have a few. So uh, w now realize that some of you are just more neat 
than others, right? As I've gotten older, I am a neat freak. I hate clutter. I hate clutter. In fact, I hate being around people who are cluttery. So this would drive me crazy, this next picture. This is not the pool that I'd want to swim in, all right? That is just way too many people for me. It just drives me nuts, all right? That, to me, that's just the epitome of people clutter right there. Um, so let's talk a little about clutter and, and, and clean rooms. Um, so if we let stuff pile up, our kids will mirror that. Now, I think it's pretty much given that most boys clutter is just a part of their experience, and hopefully they grow out of it. I did. But remember, I was a weird little kid, so I grew out of it really early. In fact, by the time I was 16, I had asked for a file cabinet for Christmas. Now, you saw my daughter was sick and twisted for like going to bed at eight as a six-year-old. You're going, you're 16, and you want a file cabinet. All the group over there is going, and he had a little pocket protector too with little things there. No, I didn't. Um, but you, you say, why would you want a file cabinet? Because I was an organized kid. And uh, the other thing, and you say, really? You, I did really ask for a file cabinet, and if you come to my house, you can see I still have it. It's out in the garage. It's a really good one. It's a steel case. I even know a lot about file cabinets. That's how twisted I am. But the reason I did it, it was because, you're gonna think this is funny, because when I was in junior high, my youth pastor challenged me to start taking notes on every Bible study and every sermon. And if you went to my house today, you can see stuff that I, you, know, you still have, I know, it is neurotic. I have notes from junior high and high school. I have every Bible class at Biola. I took every syllabus, every note. I'm, I needed someone who could help me figure out how to scan all this because I've gone electronic. But, so it was all in a drawer, then it was in a file box, then it was in two file boxes, and I just broke down and got the file cabinet. And then I got 66 file folders, and I have one for each book of the Bible. And if you came to my house, I could show you. And the problem is I don't want to throw anything away. So you can imagine what it's like to live at my house. I want it neat, but not cluttery. So you buy a storage unit. No, we don't do that. Okay, so clutter. Um, so here's a little interaction between a kid and a parent. Okay, parent. Hey, Peter, there's a lot of stuff laying around the house. Do you want to pick it up, or would you rather I picked it up? Peter says, you pick it up. Okay, well, the advantage of your picking it up is that you get to see it again. If I pick it up, I get to keep the stuff. So you might want to rethink your decision on that. But, hey, you don't have to rush. I know... I'll, I'll know what you want. If by lunchtime I see the stuff out there, I'll know you decided to have me pick it up. If I see that it's gone, then I'll know that you decided to pick it up for yourself. That's my answer to clutter. There you go, seriously? You know, the bottom line is, for most of us, we have to have a system, right, for clutter. So we had a box that kind of fits onto the stair bottom of the stairwell, and it's one of those two-tiered things. Stuff that has to go in the box goes up. And to this day, my wife has piles for me that I'm always taking up. It's mostly laundry, right? And so I thought the best house I've ever seen is the house that had the laundry, the washer and dryer, on the second floor right out down the hallway from the master bedroom. Why don't they do that in all houses? I've only seen it in one house. So clutter. Um, do you pick up after your kids? Yes or no? It probably depends who's coming over, right? So if it's important people, you pick up. If it's just 
you know, other family members, eh. As long as you look a little better than your sister's house or your brother's house, it's all good. And don't, don't fool yourself that there's in competition between siblings when you have family gatherings about how the house looks and who's trying to impress who. We'll just leave it at that. So is clutter not a big issue? I don't think it is. Anybody have any clutter, you know, horror stories that you'd like help on? Okay. Let's go ahead and summarize the clutter and clean rooms things. Number one, kids get clues about clutter from us. Number two, I think until kindergarten, it's really about a community project. You work together as a family doing work around the house and cleaning stuff up. Um, for some people, this is the easiest way to deal with clutter. Number three, clean rooms are like a garage. See it as storage. So some of you say, I'm okay with as long as I don't have to see it. So underneath the bed is in the closet, but eventually that'll come back to haunt you. If you want to see clutter, go anywhere behind this stage, and that'll be an example. Uh, and then lastly, in terms of clutter, how are you handling dirty dishes? We had a deal like, you know, if you make a dirty dish, you, you clean the dirty dish. So depending on how old your kids are, everybody should be able to rinse off a dish, and if you have a dishwasher, put it in the dishwasher. For some of us men, that means give it to dad, and I dish, you know, we do it together as family, cleaning the table, etc. And so, by the way, I had to teach a couple of teenagers from China who were living with me to, that there were household chores. That was an experience because they weren't my kids. We had to have a little family discussion about what's, what you do and what you don't do and who you're responsible for and uh, doing all that. And it was an interesting thing. Um, I'll just leave it at that because I'm being taped. But it, it worked out. By the end, we, we were on the same page and both both kids made it back to China alive. So it was, a, it's a, it was a success all the way around. All right, let's go to uh, grades, all right? Let me just make a couple comments about grades. First of all, whose grades are they? Yours or theirs, all right? Principle number one, whose grades are they? Theirs or yours? So sometimes parents are more concerned about their image, you know, because they want the sticker on the back of their card. My kid was an honor student at Oak Park High School, you know, or et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, but uh, that being said, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't help our kids develop study habits. And some of your kids, that's easier than others. Remember, her firstborn daughter, she was reading by the time she was four, little basic stuff. By the time she was in school, you know, she, was, she could do her alphabet. She would take in her backpack as a four-year-old, you know, a little practice her writing. That was in her little deal. Um, John was a lot longer. By the way, the corollary between reading and potty training. I'm not sure. John took a lot longer than Katie for potty training, you know. Um, I'm pretty sure I didn't have the right trigger or reward for him, you know. Uh, and had I bribed him more, maybe it worked. Uh, but for most people, for studying and grades, it comes down to this. You also, number two, can't control what they study or they learn, all right. You can provide the, the good environment uh, and let the noise, you know, put the noise down. But thirdly, success in school is their responsibility. And I think that's a big deal for parents. Now, you say it's not if they flunk out of school and then they never move out of my home, right? And so there is some balance there. Um, John Daniel needed a lot more help staying focused and prioritizing his time. Katie, you know, was keeping track of her, you know, assignments and all that and worked way ahead. John was more of a last-minute kind of a kid 
And I would say he is the norm compared to my daughter. And so if you have a last minute kid, you gotta just help them think through that. And we always had kind of a reward system. If you get this done, then we get to do this. And that worked really well for John. Uh, that being said, I don't think you're the one who should be doing that big science project the last three nights because they didn't plan ahead. And that's where a lot of parents get on, on cross-threaded because one of you thinks that you're there to rescue them from flunking, and the other one says, no, he didn't get it done, let him take the F. So you gotta find that, that bottom ground, that, that, that kind of mid-level uh, issue there. Okay, so any other great issues? And what do you do about Fs, by the way? Fs on a report card. So hopefully you don't have that yet, and the bottom line is it shouldn't get to that if hopefully you've got a system with a teacher that if they're getting less than a C, that you've got some kind of a notice system, right? You should be getting some you know, performance review coming home um, from, from the teacher. Um, our, neither of my kids ever got a D or an F on a report card, all right? They got a D or an F on a test, et cetera, but never on a report card. Because uh, that quarterly thing was a big deal to us, and that's kind of your midpoint, you know, before it becomes a, a semester grade. Um, do you ground kids for bad grades? Like you have no freedom, you you, you this, this, something is lost. Okay, so you got to think through the consequence, but you don't spring that to them after the fact. You set up the contract ahead of time. Hey, this is what we do. Here's another one. How many of you pay for A's? Anybody pay for A's? All right, I wish I was your kid. I got a lot of A's. Um, yeah, what was that? Oh, so there's a, that's like a big trip. All right, that, that's kind of like paying for A's, yeah. No, I know some families, I mean, they fork out money for A's, all right? Um, I, I think a reward trip, you know, for a, a job well done, that's fine. I think if you're actually physically paying for A's, here's one thing that one set of parents told me, it really backfired on because they found out their kids started cheating to get the A's. So you don't want to create an incentive that then causes him to be in a situation that he wouldn't have been in had he not been trying to get the A. I just want my kid to do the best he can do. And only you as parents know whether they're giving their best effort or they're being sloppy or whatnot, okay? So that's a little bit about grades. Let's go to whining and complaining, all right? Whining. Principle number one, parents who tolerate whining from their kids eventually whine back. Right? You say, I do not. Really? Just think about how you just said that. I don't either. Yeah, you do. So whining, if you tolerate it, you're going to start whining back. So the question is, um, if your kid whines like a pro, maybe he had a really good teacher. Their kids are w watching you. They're listening to you. And the other thing is your kid learns that the message is whining works if he gets what he wants out of it because he's whining. Is your no a no? Is your yes a yes? Do you threaten? You know, and it's like the third time then you finally do something about it. Um, kind of the, the secret to handling a whiny behavior is uh, I think the same way you deal with disrespect. The bottom line is, if they whine and there is a negative consequence to whining, you create a disincentive for it to continue. The problem is, some of you have so, you know, you're so immune to it, you kind of 
don't even hear it anymore. You, you've, you've just so, grown so accustomed to it, and it takes somebody else going, are you seriously putting up with that? What, what? Your kid is, a, is really disrespectful, and they're, and they're driving everybody nuts. Really? No, I didn't notice that. And so sometimes your tolerance level for whining goes up, and everybody else around you sees it, uh, but nobody, you know, will speak up. So you got to have some, hopefully you have some parenting buddies that, you know, you kind of watch each other's kids and you, you're comfortable with each other to say, hey, just checking this out. Now, I always think that my kid was always on his best behavior when he was with somebody else. And your kid is that way too. It's like, it was so wonderful to have John Daniel with us last weekend. He is such a little gentleman. And I'd be like looking around going, thank you. <laughs> You're talking about John Daniel Irwin. There was several boys there, right? My son? Yeah. The one who's funny, who's just like you? I heard that so many times growing up. He, he, he could talk his way out of anything. He had a sense of humor. He could work a crowd. He was very engaging with adults. And um, if you, he'll be at church one of these Sundays, you'll see, you go, the apple doesn't fall far from the trees. So the bottom line with whining kids, just realize that the tone of voice is really the issue. That's the problem with whining. It's the tone of voice, all right? It's not the politely asking for, you know, a reprieve. It's the nonverbals and it's the tone of voice, right? Now, we know communication that 55% of all communication is nonverbal, all right? 38% is tone of voice. Only 7% is the actual words they use. So you get a whopping 93% is wrapped up in the nonverbal and the tone of voice, and that's what you're trying to get. Now, here's the deal. Your kids can whine as they get older. Look, ask the older parents here, or the, not the older parents, parents with older children. <laughs> Got that right, ladies, sorry. Um, how do they whine as, as a teenager? It's not so much their tone of voice, it's this. Have you seen this one? <sighs> and you gotta have hair, which I don't. It's the, it's the head flip. It's the <sighs> whatever. They might as well have just gone like this. Loser, you loser, right? And <clears throat> so as they get older, it's not so much the tone of voice, it's the attitude. It's like, <clears throat> really? You know, it's that like, they want to make you feel stupid look, right? And uh, by the way, if they have older siblings and you have that older one who got away with that they, they pick that, they pick that up much younger, right? Or they watch other kids and how they interact. That's why, just sidebar on playdates, you've got to know who the parents are. You've got to check that out. You can't just send your kids over to somebody's house because they asked. I remember the first time Katie had a, was supposed to be a sleepover uh, and it was going to be for a birthday party with a bunch of first grade girls, all right? I didn't know the family well, but we'd, we'd, we thought, oh, they're a church family. I kid you not, we get a phone call from Katie saying, I want to come home. Now, again, this is my firstborn, so take it with a grain of salt. I said, why? She said, Dad, they're watching a movie we shouldn't be watching. I go, what? What's the name of the movie? Sleeping with the Enemy. It's an old school film. Look it up. No group of first graders should be watching Sleeping with the Enemy. Um, 
And so we came and got her. Now, as the kids got older, you know, your kids, you gotta know whether you can trust your kids. And going to a party is gonna be one of the first issues you face once they get into middle school. Can I go to this party? And I remember the first time John got invited to one of the cool kids' parties. We lived in Minneapolis, and there was this housing environment called, um, um, uh, oh, Jack Nicholas built the golf course. I can't think of it, but it was just gated community, and it was like really expensive, expensive homes, all right? And so all that came home was this flyer, right? And the phone numbers on there wasn't the parents' phone numbers. It was the girls' cell phone numbers. So I called the number and I got a voicemail. We can't come on the phone right now. And a lot of times people's, the kid, they let the kids do the answer machine thing. So I didn't, I didn't think it was a big deal that it was the teenage girl saying, hey, we can't come on the phone right now, leave us a message, right? But I didn't get a call back. I called a second time. Didn't get a call back. I said, John, before I go over, you're going to this party, I gotta talk to that parent. Well, he's like, Dad, you're not gonna like not let me go just because you can't get a hold of the parent. All of a sudden, it became my problem. Now, by the way, they're experts at making it your problem. I said, well, no, but if you wanna go, I gotta talk to that parent. And he gave me this like, seriously? That is so 50s. That's so like, leave it to Beaver. That's like, Oh, Dad, really? I said, really? So we can do, play it however you want. It's a birthday party, you know, and it's the cool kids. So I gotta, you got to kind of know what, the, you know what they want and all that. We're just giving them money, Dad. You don't have to talk to parents. I go, we're talking to parents. Well, the word got out that the parents were going to be gone. <laughs> and I'm the one who discovered it. Now we have a problem because now... He doesn't want to be known as the kid who's narked out the kids about the party, but he can't go. And he was so mad, and he was so embarrassed at the same time. I never did talk to the parent, and he didn't go to the party. Contrast, the next time it came up a couple months later, where it was one of our, one of our friends was having a family. It was we, from church, and we knew the family. Now, it wasn't nearly as cool as the school party, where the parents wouldn't be there. But of course, that parent talked to me. I talked to them, and it was, it was great. But I didn't let that set either, because just because the parent's there, well, tell me a little bit, about what do you do at the parties? And you got parents back in Minnesota, it was, there's basements, right? Uh, we just put them in the basement, we don't go down. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, do you ever like go down just to like bring more chips and dip? Nope. Do you want some help chaperoning this party? Really? Yeah. I was a youth pastor at the time, so I was a hit, right? So that was no big deal because I was the youth pastor. But there were parents who would completely abandon a bunch of kids for four hours in the basement with two bedrooms. I'll just let your imagination run where that could end up, all right? You say, now all of you with five years are going, seriously? In 10 years, am I facing that? No, you face it when they're 11 and they're 10. John Daniel walked in his very first time at a church kids party in the basement on a couple making out in the downstairs bathroom when he was just going to use the bathroom. And he was like 12. And he was 
horrified and interested in the same breath. So you can kind of get the deal there because it was an eighth grade girl making out with one of his seventh grade uh, friends, not boyfriend. So he was horrified and interested. And so I'm just telling you, this isn't my talk about teaching your kids about love, sex, and dating, but I can tell you that quite frankly, that the more you trust your instincts, the writer you will be. Think about it. If, it's, if you've got a catch in your spirit, you're not an over-controlling parent. If there's just this hint like, something doesn't seem right here, something isn't right here. All right? Now, I realize we got teenage parents and an 11-year-old over here. I think the rest of you, I've just scared you to death. So we'll just, we'll just move on because you got at least five more years before you worry about that stuff. All right? Uh, the only other thing about whining and complaining is sometimes there's a real problem underneath all this drama, especially with girls. Sometimes girls are very, very moody, and we mistake moodiness and whining. And I think, especially for our young ladies, sometimes those moody girls, there's just other issues. So, you know, the, uh, puberty is starting a lot sooner for our girls, and this and we've seen the studies over the last 300 years, the onset of the menstrual period is getting younger and younger and younger, all right? And so if you have got a hormonal 10-year-old girl, you might want to just do the mom talk and just talk a little more about what the hell is going on with your body and all of that good stuff. All the stuff that dads get like kind of red in the face and all of a sudden, <coughs> we're talking like this? <coughs> yes, talk to your mother about that. Um, and so that's a little bit more about whining and complaining, all right? Now, um, I've worked with students and families for a long time, and I thought you might want to know, what do you think after 30 years of counseling kids, or talking to kids mostly, <laughs> counseling parents, they're the ones needing the therapy, uh, and talking with kids, what the three biggest complaints that kids have about parents and then, what do you think the three biggest complaints I had from parents about kids? At your tables, we're gonna pause the tape here just for a second. We're gonna have a little team competition, all right? So, at your tables, come up with your three top complaints that you think kids said about parents and work together. You can put them on you know, a three by five card to represent your group. And uh, three top complaints parents had about kids. All right, on your mark, get set, go. Check it out. All right, you're gonna stand right here. Table number one, table number two, and table number three, all right? So we got one, two, three. Now, all right, we're gonna put you all in the middle here. We'll pass it down from one, two, and three. Table two. You've already lost. They already said they're winning. You're good to go. Come on up. All right, here we go. Here's what we're going to do. Stand up here. So we're going to start. We're not going to give you any answers up here yet. So we're going to start with the kid's perspective. So here's how the game is played. You're going to read your first and best answer. Hopefully that negates their answer and they can't say it if you've said it. So pick the, pick the three, pick the one, and then you get to give one and you get to one. Now if he picks one and two and they're on your card... And you can only pick your third answer. We'll see how many Always different been. answers. Wait, All right? Just a minute, just a minute, just a minute. 
So from the kid's perspective, here we go. Roll it. All right, from the kid's perspective, there are three biggest complaints about parents. What's, what do you think kids are saying? Number one. They don't understand this. They don't understand the words, listen to me. No, they don't, they don't understand slash listen to me. That's the parents All right. So from the kid's perspective, they don't listen to me. They don't understand me. All right, pass the, yeah, pass it along, talk into the mic. All right? Too controlling. The parents are too controlling. Very good. And what did you guys have? We had, um, they don't understand. We had listen and understand is too different. All right, so we'll let you do understand. All right, let's go back to the, the now, do you have any other answers on your card that, that you haven't already heard? Yes. All right, go ahead. Give us another one. Uh, they don't have enough time. They don't have enough time for me. Very good. All right? So you're, all, you're out, all right? You're out, you're out. Do you have any more? Um, yeah. yeah, we do. All right. You two can sit down. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you for playing. We are too strict. Oh, no, yeah, you have to stay up here. All right. Oh, they're too strict. That's like controlling. And we have nagging They nag too much. So actually, they went with bonus material, didn't they? That's why they won. They had more things. All right, very good. Um, now, just pause for a second. Well, I'll show you both lists in a second. Now, let's go to the parents' side. All right, you get to start this time. Parent side, number one complaint parents have about kids. They don't listen. They don't listen. All right. So we get it both ways is what you're saying. Okay. Here we go. Uh, lazy or not productive. In, right here. So we can get it. Lazy or not productive. Okay. Disrespectful. They're disrespectful. All right. Let's start over again. Anything else? They don't obey. They don't obey. Okay. He's out. Out. All right. Have a seat. We'll see what the survey says. All right. You can take that. All right. Um, now, there is nothing scientific about this survey, but I do want you to say I've worked this over with a bunch of different groups over the years, and um, let's just see if it, if it rings true. Number one, from the kids' perspective, now they didn't use this word, but it's a summary of what you said. Number one complaint is you're overprotective. You're overprotective. You're smothering me. Let me grow up. Let me grow up. Number two, you're going to be shocked by this, inconsistency. Oh, that's great. You tell me to, but Dad, what about you? And that inconsistency uh, came out. And number three, you got it, not listening, not listening. You're not listening to me. Now, again, we've clarified that you can... Say, I'm hearing you, I'm just disagreeing with you. I'm hearing you, I just disagree with you. All right, three biggest complaints from a parent's perspective. Number one, dishonesty. Dishonesty, not telling the truth, all right? Number two, disrespect. Disrespect was their second biggest complaint. And number three, and you got to this one, irresponsibility, not being responsible, not taking care of, of business. Now, <clears throat> you can add to that list. There's nothing scientific, but if you're going through your own list in your own mind saying, hey, am I wrestling with dishonesty, disrespect, or irresponsibility with my kids? That's an area you should focus on. If you ask your kids, and this is a dangerous thing because some of us have very fragile egos, but as your kids get older, hey, how am I doing that's a remarkable question to ask a kid as they get older, and if you can handle the answer. How am I really doing? Um, 
I'll never forget once Katie went off to college. She's a freshman at Biola University, and she's a psychology major. <laughs> she comes home from Christian, uh, Christmas after one semester of psychology 1A. Do I need to say anything more? So there's a little altercation at home with John Daniel and some issue. Just name your issue, and that could have been the issue. And there begins to be a very heated discussion. Because as a parent, I was never yelling. We were just talking loudly. It's a defense mechanism. So we're talking loudly, and we, you know, we're not getting anywhere. And Katie's watching this volley go back and forth. And finally, she says, could I say something? We both looked at her and said, no! And then we kept going. And, she, and so she waited. By this time, Cheryl's in there, and she's doing the dishes, or kind of just fiddling in the kitchen. She's watching all this, just shaking her head like, this is going nowhere. And Katie said one more time when we were kind of, we both took a breath. She said, could I make an observation? I'm thinking, this is so professorial and psycho, psych, you know, little psychologist. I, and so John and I both looked at her like, yeah, whatever, you know, we're not going to listen, but go ahead. She said, and she started with me, she said, Dad, do you realize how often you talk over John Daniel when he's trying to make a point? What do you think my response was? I, don't know. I do not, all right? I got a little defensive. She says, it's just an observation, Dad. She didn't argue, she said, just an observation, so then after she said that, I, I knew she was right. She was absolutely right. So John Daniel's like lipping his chest. Yeah, yeah, baby. She goes, she goes, and I was never, it was so funny. She goes like, oh, John Daniel, I'm not done. <laughs> and she did the little finger wag. I'm not done, John. And she goes, John Daniel, why do you argue when it's clear that you're wrong? Why do you do that? And then she said, do you enjoy upsetting dad? Well, if he wouldn't be, she said, just an observation, and she walked out of the room. That's all she said. We both fumed about it later, but later that night I said, Katie, you, you're absolutely right. And then she said something that really kind of cut me. In, in a good way, but it was really profound. She said, Dad, the difference is I never stood up for myself and I let you do it. John Daniel has much more of a, of a backbone, Dad, and it won't work with him like it did with me. I said, well, that sounds kind of whacked. She said, just make an observation, Dad. <laughs> She's a smart little lady, and she was a psychology major who never did psychology, but if she only had one client, her daddy was forever grateful. Because sometimes we learn way too late in life that we, had we listened to our kids beyond the verbiage up here, sometimes they got it right. But we were so busy being right, we missed the truth. Well, let's wrap up by saying this. What do kids want most from a parent when it's all said and done? 
I told you Sunday about the 15-year-old girl from the high school who was suicidal and all the stuff that happened in her family. Those are extreme situations, but the thing that I dealt with with kids for most of my ministry career was the average garden variety parental family issues. But when it's all said and done, this is what I think kids want from parents. Number one, they want us to listen without interrupting them. And that works at a whole bunch of different levels. Just learn to listen without interrupting. That is so hard for some of you. Some of you are just wired that way. You're just, the words are just on the tip of your tongue and you just constantly can't not say it. Number two, kids want you to do the right thing, not just talk about the right things. They want you to do the right thing, not just talk about the right things. Number three, they, need to, they, want us, they want us to earn their respect, not demand it. You say, they should just respect me. Yeah, they should. But I can tell you right now, when you've earned it, it doesn't ever feel like you had to ever demand it. It's kind of like you know, the passage in, in, uh, about husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. You know, I've never played the, I've been married 34 years. I can't remember one time I played the submit trump card in our marriage. Because if I'm loving my kids, or loving my wife, as Christ loved the church, what did Christ do for the church? What did he do? He died. Now, that means for me in marriage, I have to die to my agenda. That means I have to die to self. That means I have to say, how can I serve you today? And the same thing with my kids. If I'm demanding their respect, I'm the dictator, like we talked about in week one, you will obey me. Yeah, you can play power games, but in the end, you're never gonna win. Because there's plenty of example kids who did this with their heads, and inside they're going, I'm so out of here. I'm so out of here. Number four, this is one that I've perfected with my kids. Admit when you are wrong. Admit when you're wrong and don't make excuses. I messed up a lot of different things with my kids. I wasn't a very, I, I, my, my, my wife says that I, I, I'm too critical, but I'm just telling you the facts are she was a better parent than I was. I played better with the kids, by the way, but she was a better parent, right? And the problem was I would get emotionally hooked. And I had to learn that there were times where I had to just go to my kids and say, Dad was wrong. Dad was wrong. I am not, I was not a very good example of being a Christ follower. And when they're younger, you get down at eye level. Here's the amazing thing about five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. They are unbelievably resilient. They would always forgive they would always forgive. That's all right, Daddy. And Katie was so sweet. That's all right, Daddy. You're getting better. <laughs> John Daniel was more mercenary. That's all right, Dad, but it's going to cost you. You know, He didn't say it in so many words, but he, he worked the system. By the way, when you see my son, please just <laughs> shake his hand. Because you're going to shake his hand and go, I feel like I know you, John Daniel. Yeah, that's all staying right here, all right? Admit they are wrong and don't make excuses. Number four, hear the whole story without jumping to conclusions. 
hear the whole story without jumping to conclusions. And for some of you with your engineer mind, you've already played three chess moves down the, check, the chess board and you've jumped to your conclusion before they even got the whole story up. Oh, update from last week, John Daniel sneaking out, 10 years old, 25 now, 15 years later, we were at church together Sunday night at Your Blender Friends, we were at a big event together and afterwards we were hanging out and I said, John Daniel, I'm gonna talk to some parents again this week. Do you still maintain that you snuck out to defend your sister's honor? He said, Dad, that is the honest truth. And I said, well, why did you go out in boxers and a bathroom? He goes, what? I never went out in boxers and a bathroom. I go, did I get that part of the starting wrong? He goes, Dad, I had my gym shorts on. No bathrobe, no, I had a t-shirt and gym shorts. So I stand corrected. He was not in a bathrobe. I said, were you at least barefoot? He goes, yeah, okay. And I said, why? Because I didn't want you to hear me. I was sneaking out. I said, okay. We got that part agreed. So it's his story and he's sticking with it. Don't jump to conclusions. Lastly, think of thoughtful boundaries, but not control, all right? Think of the idea that they want boundaries, but they don't want to be controlled. It, you know, kind of comes full circle here. Boundaries are appropriate. The problem is every river has a left bank and a right bank. And the problem is for the permissive left side of the bank, we crash and burn. For the overprotected dominant right side of the bank, we crash and burn. And the goal of parenting is to navigate this river called being a parent without crashing and burning on either side of the left by being overpermissive or on the right by being over-controlling. I want to close by telling you a story about my dad, and this may be a time to get a Kleenex box out. I'll just give you a fair warning. I grew up in a great home. I had great parents, and I say that because I didn't have um, parents that were whacked. Some of you cannot say that. Some of you had parents that just were not, were not kind. Some of you grew up in abusive homes. Some of you were sexually or physically abused by your parents. Uh, that was none of my experience. The biggest issue is my mom was very controlling and dominant. My dad's biggest problem was that he was passive and not a leader. Pretty garden variety stuff. It was 1973. I was uh, in the weight room at Covina High School. It was July, and the coach came in and said, Irwin, come here. What did I do? He said, you gotta go home. I said, what? Your dad's had a massive heart attack. I said, okay. So I got home. My mom said, we're getting on a plane in two hours. We're flying to Phoenix. At that time, because of financial reasons, my dad was working in Phoenix, was only home on the weekends. We lived in Southern California. He was in his 50s, and if I do my math right, I think he is the same age as I am right now. He was 56. So it was pretty unexpected. And so we got on this plane, we flew to Phoenix. He, we got there, it's, he's in intensive care. He's got tubes coming out of his nose. He's, got, he's on a ventilator. I thought he had a stroke. He was still unconscious. He was heavily sedated. 
My mom, the strong, dominant, controlling one, was in a puddle of tears. I'd never seen my mom cry. Maybe I made her cry, but crying like that. My sister wasn't around. She had been married by that time, and so it was my mom and myself. She left the hospital room, and I got my tents to be with him. And I had this one prevailing thought. I wonder if my dad is going to survive this. And I wonder if he knows how much I love him. Big, strong football player. All I could think of is he's going to die, and he's not going to know how much I love him. And I made a deal with God that day. That, that day I said, God, if you allow my dad to live, I will never again take him for granted. And when he is conscious, I'm gonna hug him and tell him how much I love him. And at that point, the doctor's saying, it's touch and go, it's a massive heart attack. Well, I wanna shorten the story up. The bottom line is he recovers. It's about three weeks before he can actually come home. He's finally out of the hospital. He's got a two-month recovery process where he's at home. That was in July. So now, fast forward to September. We're done with two-a-days. I come home from a football practice, and it dawns on me. I've never made good on my promise. I came in, my dad was sitting on the couch, and I said, Dad, I gotta tell you something. When you were in that hospital room two and a half months ago, I thought you were gonna die. And I realized how much I've taken you for granted all of my life. I just wanna tell you I love you. And I want you to know that I'm gonna do a better job of letting you know that. And then the remarkable happened, because my dad never, ever cried. But they tell you later that after you have a heart attack or a big stroke, that men become much more emotional. If you saw that Harrison Ford movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My dad broke down crying. He grabbed me and hugged me like he never let me go. The only other time I saw him ever do that was when my sister got married five years earlier, cried like a baby. And he hugged me, and he said, you don't know how much that means to me, son. I love you too. And from that day forward, our family made a commitment, we're never leaving the house without telling each other, I love you. If you ever hear me on the phone with my wife, I love you, honey. Hear my kids, I love you, John Daniel. I love you, Katie Bear. I love you, Dad. I love you, Mom. My goodness, we're a frickin', you know, little house on the prairie, John Boy Walton family now, you know? And I just wanna tell you something. I don't know what all you go through in your family, but I can tell you these three simple words. I love you.
can heal a whole lot of pain. Now here's the crazy thing. You think I'm talking about your kids. I'm talking to you. Because when's the last time, if they're still alive, you told your folks, I love you. If they're still alive, maybe the most important thing out of this entire parenting seminar is for you to do some business with your stuff, with your parents. Because someday you'll not be able to do that. I'm so glad that my parents, when they both died, knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that their kids loved them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the fact that you are the great healer of the dysfunctional family called the human race. And it's because of your grace that you have made a difference in my life. Lord knows I am one messed up parent. Did not do it right, didn't get it right. But I'm so glad that you gave me resilient kids. You showed mercy back to their daddy. And I thank you for that example of showing mercy and grace to me as your children. And so I ask that you bless these families, you bless these parents. They would in no way be heaped with guilt and blame and regret. But as they move forward, may you help them as they try to follow you and their kids become more like Jesus as they become more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Boop, boop. Boop, boop.